it's very obvious that God did not exclude himself from suffering. Now, I don't know about you, if I was God, and there had to be some suffering, I'd let everybody else do it, and I don't want to do it. Right? Isn't that the way we would think? We don't want to do that. But God did not leave himself out. In fact, I believe, in Christ's respect, his suffering was the worst. Now, we might say, well, it didn't last as long as my suffering and, and all that, but how many of us... When we've gone through any kind of suffering, whether it be physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, is anybody here sweat drops of blood? How intense does our suffering have to be for our body to sweat drops of blood because of the intensity of that suffering? I don't think there's anybody. In fact, if we took all of our suffering together and lumped it into one, if we could do that, would that even be enough to bring on sweat of drops of blood? on just one individual. I don't think you and I can fully comprehend the intensity of his suffering that he went through for me. Now I noticed as I was going over my notes here, um, I put plural pronouns here. God redeemed us. Uh, he took our curse. I went through and crossed that all out. So if in your notes you see that, I want to suggest go through and cross out the plural pronoun and put a, a singular Christ died for me. Christ suffered for me because that's where it's at. We need to make it personal and not just a, a, a general thing because, again, I, I believe this with all my heart, that if all of, in all of human history, I was the only human being to ever come to know Christ, he would have still been willing to do it. In fact, I've talked to pastors in the past that get discouraged sometimes when tennis drops. And, and of course, being a missionary, we had small classes sometimes. And sometimes we'd come to prayer meeting only about two or three. And I've heard pastors, well, there's only about a half a dozen people, so we're going to cancel prayer meeting. And I said, what's wrong with the other six? Aren't they just as important as if you had 60? Because in God's eye, one is just as important as if there's 10 or 100 or 1,000. And we need to look at it the same way. We are extremely important to him. What's more amazing to me is, did God need me? Did God need you? No, he didn't. But he chose to create us in a very, very special way. And as we saw last week, all this suffering that's been going on within the Godhead... And I was going to almost say the majority of it on Christ. And I guess we could look at it that way because of the physical suffering. But I don't think, again, you and I have any comprehension of the emotional suffering, the spiritual suffering that went on between God the Father and God the Son. For, well, both have always existed. And in that existence, there was always perfect peace and perfect harmony. And we know from 9 o'clock in the morning to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, there was the most intense suffering that God had ever experienced in all of the universe, in all of time, and all because of my sin. And so as we began to look at that last week, we see that all this was so that we could begin to scratch the surface of the greatness of God's glory. 
God wants himself revealed to us and he created us so that we can. So by Christ's suffering, he absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. What's the key word in that verse? It's used three times. Curse. What's a curse? Well, in this case, it's someone who's been declared extremely bad. <laughs> in fact, in the Roman Empire, not everybody got crucified. They saved the crucifixion for the worst criminal in the Roman Empire. In fact, if you were a Roman, you couldn't be crucified. You were excluded because you were above the rest of the people in the kingdom. But if you were not a Roman citizen and you were a horrible, horrible criminal, you were going to be crucified. And so the crucifixion was not a commonplace punishment. It was saved for the worst. And our Savior was declared the worst of criminals. Now again, we've got to look at that again. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Why is he being a curse for us? Because who's the worst criminal? Me. You. Now, if we go out there in the street and do a survey, how bad are you? What are you going to get? Well, I'm not too bad. I'm a good moral person. In fact, there's a lot of people in church today. So that makes me pretty good because I'm a religious individual. I go to church every week. And some will say, well, I'm a teacher, I'm a deacon, I'm a preacher. All these things are my favor. I'm a good person. But if they've never come to the point to realize I'm a filthy, dirty, rotten sinner before a holy God, they're still cursed. The only thing that will redeem us from that curse is acknowledging that indeed you and I are filthy, dirty, rotten sinners before a holy God. It's very easy to compare us to individuals that are horrible. And we have a lot of them in this world, don't we? You can't turn the television on without hearing of horrible crimes taking, across, taking place all across the globe. I wonder how they pick some and pick this one and put it on news. I don't know what they do to, to, to pick those things, but it's horrible what's going on in this world. But when we compare ourselves to Jesus Christ... In reality, we've talked about this before, but if I compare myself to Christ compared to the worst criminal, where am I closest to? I'm a lot closer to this horrible, horrible sinner than I am to where Christ is at. So he absorbed the wrath of God on my behalf. I deserve this crucifixion because I'm the horrible person. I've been cursed because of my sinfulness. He became the curse for us as my substitute, as your substitute. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. There was no question when he was hanging on the cross for the Roman Empire, these guys are bad. 
we looked at that at Resurrection Sunday when the soldiers and I, I, I just cannot imagine what it's been like for those soldiers to nail those individuals to the cross. Two fighting and cursing and spitting and doing what they could to keep those nails from being driven in their hands and into their feet. You know, I believe my Savior got down on the ground and crawled up on that cross and laid his hands out and said, go ahead. With compassion in his eyes as they drove the nails into his hands. Can you imagine what that must have done to the, the soldier who... I mean, when you're getting kicked and screamed and spit, you were, I want to put that nail in your hand. You deserve this. But what do you do to a man who lays there and with compassion in his eyes, look at you, go ahead and nail me. I'm doing this for you. That's the curse that he was taking for me and for you. And, and so he was, Christ redeemed me from the curse. The curse and the result of it is the fact I deserve to go to the lake of fire and live there forever in torment and pain. But it says he's redeemed, which means brought back because of the sin curse. We were gods before sin came, and now we need to be bought back. By his crucifixion, he took my curse. He became my curse for me. He did this on my behalf. Again, as I challenge us to make that personal, how personal is our sin before God? When was the last time, and we will do that today as, we are, as the cup is being passed, we will challenge each one of us to really examine our heart and see, how horrible an individual before God I really, really am. I have to ask myself this question. When was the last time I was overwhelmed because of my sinful condition before a holy God? Or do I kind of tend to be like the world say, I'm not too bad? But he did this on my behalf and I need to see how my personal sin brought this on my Savior. We need to really think about it. He bore my sin and purchased my forgiveness. 1 Peter 2.4 1 Peter 2.4 excuse me. 1 Peter 2.24 Who, bore, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. He bore my sin and purchased my forgiveness. Now we know that in the courts, depending on your crime, you got to bond that has to be paid so you can be released or if there's a crime and we've all probably paid our fair share of speeding tickets <laughs> you know and depending on how fast you're going to become the, the, the crime depends on how big the payment's going to be made how big would it cost how big a pay would need to be paid on my behalf to pay for my sinfulness 
There's not enough money in the world in all of human history to pay for what I've done. How about you? But he purchased it for my forgiveness, it says here. Who bore himself, who himself bore our sins in his own body. Now he supposed he could have pushed that onto somebody else. But he didn't. He took it upon himself in his own body that we, having died to sin, might live righteous by whose stripes we're healed. He purchased it. He bore my personal sin so I can die to it. Now, when you die to something, you're not living to that anymore. You're not living for that. You can't do it because you're dead. But how many of us and I, I, we all struggle with sin. But I hope that we're not getting up in the morning and already beginning to make our plans how we can participate in this sin activity before the day is over. There are individuals, that's what they do. The Bible says that. The unsaved individual, they can't do anything else but that. If I do this sin, I will be satisfied before the day is over. Of course, we know they do that and then they're not satisfied. But how many of us Christians are guilty of the same? We make plans. And yet it says here that he died so that we don't, we have to, we, see, we can die to sin. How many have ever prayed, God, help me to hate sin the same way you do? I do that often. Because I admit, I like sin too much. I wish it was automatic today. I said, Lord, please save me. That from that point on, I would hate sin just like he does. Don't you? But we don't, do we? We have the choice of pleasing God or pleasing ourselves in our sinfulness. But he died so that I can make the right choice. That's what it says here. Live for righteousness. What is righteousness? The Bible is very clear. If I'm going to have a, an intimate relationship with him, I have to choose between right and wrong. And God doesn't leave it up to what I choose. He spells it out very clearly what right and wrong is. Now, if I make a choice based on what I want because it's going to make me feel good in some particular way, I'm not dying to sin. Even though it will satisfy, and how many times do we do this? I can do this, and no one will know. There's someone that knows. There's always an eyewitness to their, our sin, isn't there? It's Almighty God. And I've been striving for the last several months myself that when I'm tempted to sin, to quickly imagine that Jesus Christ is in the room with me. Because don't we have to be honest with ourselves? If our spouse or a friend or somebody is in the room and we're tempted to sin, we're not going to do it, are we? Because we got an image to maintain. When it's just me, by myself, I'm more likely to give in to it. Are you the same? If we're honest with ourselves? That's the me that I need to work on. 
That's the real me when I'm by myself. Christ died so I can die to that sin. My goal and your goal should be as holy as we are by ourselves as we are when in the presence of other people. Because I guess, and I, I've been wrestling with this some, I know we have to maintain an example as a Christian. We need that. But is my motive wrong? Am I doing this more to please God or am I doing this more to please you and to maintain an image? If I'm doing it to maintain my image, that's sin. That's pride. But if I'm doing it to please Him, that glorifies Him. So we need to evaluate while we do it because that's a subtle sin. We want to call it subtle, but it's really not all that subtle, is it? It's selfishness. And Christ died. He suffered. So I don't have to be caught in that trap. And that's the trap that Satan wants to be in because he knows as long as I keep trying to sneak in these sins, he's got me where he wants me. My relationship with God will not be what it could be or should be. So, I need to die to sin in his body. He said, this do in remembrance of me. So let's take a moment again to reflect upon what his body went through to pay, help suffer and pay for the price. It's not a pretty picture. And if it wouldn't gross us out, I'd put a clip up here from the Passion to show exactly what he went through because I believe what they portrayed in that movie, if you've never seen it, is very, very close to what our Savior went through. First of all, they began to beat his face. Actually, they began to slap his face with an open hand. That was enough, then they blindfolded him. Drove a crown of thorns on his hands, and, and, and we have one up there that has thorns on it. I don't know what, what that thing is, what, what kind of a tree it is, but if you've ever been out in the woods and trying to chase deer through that kind of stuff, you know it'll rip you to shreds. They took that and drove that into a scalp, and you know what happens to your scalp when you cut it? It bleeds. Then they blindfolded him. And then they took a closed fist and began to beat on his face. If you ever watch a boxing match, these guys are wearing gloves on their hands. Their faces are all swollen and beat up. Can you imagine what his face must have looked like after beating on it with, an open, with, with a closed fist? And that says they pulled his beard from his face. I can't imagine what his face must have looked like after he got done with that. Then they leaned him over and took a cat of nine tails. And they ripped the hide off his back. And not once did he ever whimper. Not once did he ever complain. He took it because he loved me that much. And he loved you that much. And then as I already mentioned, they took the nails and drove them into his hands and into his feet. And it must be when they dropped the cross into the hole that his joints came loose because every joint in his body came loose. And if you ever had a disjointed joint, you know it's painful. I've never had one, but they say it's more painful than even a break. In his body, he suffered But his suffering was not just a physical, as we've mentioned, I believe it was emotional, somewhat spiritual, because there's a, there's a chasm between the Father and the Son that had never existed before. 
And since God is a very, very, very relationship being, can you imagine what that must have been? In fact, I think some of your parents can. You've had times when between your children there's been friction. Maybe between a husband and wife there's been things weren't going so well. We can get a little bit of a taste of what that must be like. But it says here on the, and it emphasizes over and over in Scripture, a cross death. Now our Savior really didn't suffer a great deal compared to some individuals. It was not uncommon for someone who hang on a cross to hang for seven to ten days. His was just a matter of hours. But it was not uncommon for them to, and in fact, why did they break the legs of the other men? Because when they're on the cross and all your weight is on your chest, you can't breathe. And they would have to raise themselves up on the nails in their hands to breathe. And when they couldn't do that anymore, they would suffocate. And so since he was, this was a Jewish authorized crucifixion, he had to be off the cross before the Passover began. They broke the legs to finish it all. They didn't need to do that with the Lord. He was already dead. All that physical abuse that he had taken in his body and suffered on my behalf had its effect. He was wounded for our transgression. Let's turn to Isaiah 53, 5. Isaiah 53.5 But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and his stripes were healed. Why did he all the suffering? He wants us to have peace. Peace with him, not peace with ourselves. We can deceive ourselves. <laughs> and that's not real peace. But peace is having our sins taken care of. Having a hatred for sin, forsaking sin in our lifestyle, and choosing to be obedient to him. That's when peace floods our lives and floods our soul. And we can go to bed at night knowing that I'm at peace with God. Again, I trust that you're not guilty of this. Going to bed at night, Lord, forgive me for my sins today. That is not how God wants us to confess our sins. He wants us to state the sins specifically. And so if we have sinned, then is the time. As soon as we acknowledge that we have sinned, Lord, please forgive me, I just sinned. That's the time to confess it. Because he wants us to deal with those. Because if we just say a general, it's still going to be easy for us to establish a sinful habit. But it's going to be a lot harder to establish a sinful habit if we're dealing with the sin one at a time. That's why 1 John 1 9 exists. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 7 and 8. He made himself of no reputation, 
taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He provided perfect righteousness for us. He reduced himself to nothing. And again, I've shared this before, but I, I, I just I need this constant reminder. But I see him coming down. It'd be like me and my humanity willing to become a cockroach to die for a cockroach. Anybody here willing to turn themselves into a cockroach to die for a cockroach? But isn't that what God did? Isn't that what Christ did for me? He gave up his godhoodness and, and took on the form of a human being to die for me. I'm nothing more than a cockroach. That's what these verses are telling us here. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. He did not exclude himself from the suffering. He included himself in it. And I believe in reality, he took the major abuse of the suffering. He gave up the wonders of heaven. His ability to express himself as being God. He became a servant. He didn't even come as a king. We all know where he was born. He was born in a barn. Now he could have been born in some royalty, but that's not the point. It's not about me. It's about you. Servanthood. <laughs> and then he died a humiliating death. And again, for public things we have to do this but it says he hung on the cross naked he did that all for me his death he defeated death Hebrews chapter 2 I dare say most of us in this room we don't look forward to death every day but if it would stare us in the face most of us in this room would not fear it, but welcome it, because we know it's our time. In fact, I, I, wouldn't we all agree that if God came down and sent me an email and says, on such and such a day is going to be your last breath, I would not be like Hezekiah said, Lord, give me 15 more years. I said, Lord, let's get her done. <laughs> let's go home, right? That's where we're all at today, aren't we? We want to go home when the time is right, but until then, we have to be faithful. And he defeated death. For us, death is, there is no sting. We'll look at that again here in a moment. But Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says, Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who hath power of death, and that is the devil. When people die, ultimately Satan is behind it. Satan, if he could, I think he'd kill every unsaved individual because the old saying, misery loves company, that's Satan. That came from him. He knows where he's going and he wants to take as many people with him as possible. But he defeated death. He shared it by taking on the flesh and blood. As we will see, we, we know that he came back from the grave to show us that death is not permanent. Through his death, its feet eternal life is possible. 1 Corinthians 15. And then we use this often in a funeral, especially for a believer. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? 
The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Death is not something we fear. It is something we welcome when the time is right and is by Him. Now, how does Christ's death impact us? Well, He's defeated Satan, Colossians chapter 2. It is so easy for us to think that Satan is still in control. And we've looked at several things already to see that Satan is really not in control, but God is using him. Colossians 2, 14-15 says, Having wiped out... Um, Having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Having disarmed principalities and powers, let's talk about evil angels and demons that exist. Now you and I don't see that much here in America, although I believe it's increasing, but there are parts of the world that that is very prominent. It's an everyday occurrence. In fact, I believe when Christ was here, Satan pulled out all the stops. How many places do we hear about demons being cast out and demon activity? I believe that demon activity in that part of the world was an all-time high. Satan was doing everything he could to disrupt the message that Christ was trying to convey. It's very real. And he has died and put all that to an end. He wiped out our records. Can you imagine that? Having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements against us. Now, yeah, we go to the police station and they got records on people's crimes and some of them are really long. <laughs> but we have a record too. And it's all been wiped out. All been taken care of. Any of us still perfect? But in God's eyes, the shed blood of Christ, we are declared perfect. Do our little pea brains grasp that? In my sinful condition, on my worst day, Christ's righteousness has been imputed upon me. Some of us have to wear glasses. Just for sake of an illustration, let's put some red lenses in there and then look at life through those red lenses. Because when Christ looks at John Stitzel, he sees me through red lenses. Those, that red is the blood of Christ. And no matter how many more sins and no matter how big those sins may be, from now to the day I die, Christ does not see me as a sinner. He sees me as with the righteousness of Christ imputed upon me. All because of his suffering. He wiped out my record. He wiped out your record. It's paid in full. He disarmed Satan and his minions, the principality and the power. He has publicly defeated Satan. That was the cross thing. That was public. The only thing that keeps us from 
going to heaven is unforgiven sin. And the only way you can not have unforgiven sin is not knowing Christ as your Savior. And unfortunately, the scriptures make it clear there's going to be more going to hell than there are heaven. I don't know why God designed it that way, but he did. And not about you, but I thank God I'm one of the few. How about you? Not that I deserve it. But for some reason, he chose you and me. We looked at that last week. I don't understand it. I quit trying to comprehend that years ago. The Bible states it. I believe it. That settles it. He made it possible for us to be healed from the curse of sin. Isaiah 53, 5. We looked at that a little bit, but look at it again here. He was wounded for our transgressions, abused, bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. How much, how much damage have we done to ourselves because of our sinful condition? Have you ever tried to stop? In fact, maybe you have stopped to analyze that. This sin caused this. I have no one to blame but myself. In fact, when we are participating in sin and we are going to experience the consequence, although we want to convince ourselves we're not, that's why we do it in private. I'm not hurting anybody but myself, right? In fact, in a spouse relationship, husband, wife, wives, husbands, do you know when your husband or wife is not exactly in tune with God? I'll bet you do. Because he or she is cranky. Am I right? If we're out of ourselves, is that not right? Isn't that not why we get cranky with our spouse? God is chewing on us about a sin issue, and we don't want to deal with it. And so we take it out on the nearest person to us, and we take it out on somebody. Or if it's a worker, you might take it on the boss or an employee. Or if you're in your backyard, you might take it on the dog. You know, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Our crankiness, our irritableness, if you will analyze it, there's a sin issue behind it. We have no one to blame but ourselves. But he's healed us from that. That's the whole point of this. We don't have to live in that condition. We can live at peace. That's why he came. And some of us know that because the older we get in the Lord, the smarter we get. The bigger our love for God gets, the less we participate in sin and the more we enjoy peace. Right? How many of us have more peace now than we did 20 years ago? Yeah. That's the reason. And, and because of his suffering that he did on the cross, that curse of sin no longer has to control me. I can be healed from that. Let's look at Revelation 7, 17 and, and look at some coming promises. And we're all frustrated about the way this world is going. And we want to be delivered from it. Paul said himself, I despair of life. Paul wanted to go home. And we looked at Sunday schools in the morning. Five times Paul was beaten. 
in prison, shipwrecked, all the list is enormous for one individual. Paul at times despaired of life. He wanted to go home. How many of us want to go home? We all want to go home because of these promises, 717. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to the living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation 21.3 And I heard a loud voice from heaven say, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and he shall be his people, and God himself will be with their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, no more sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Isn't that going to be awesome? I am looking forward to that day. This is only possible to Christ's suffering. We are brought to God, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Why is all this suffering going on in your life and my life? One goal, to bring us to him. Because again, we've asked this question, when do we go God the most? When things are going good? I have to admit, I've tried when things are going well. Say, Lord, I don't want to get any farther away from you than I don't want you to have to bring a trial into my life to bring me back to you. <laughs> so God, I want to thank you and I want to stay close to you during the good times as well as the bad. But I've also come to realize without a shadow of a doubt I cannot worship my comfort zone. And I do. We all do to some degree. Because nobody, I mean, did anybody wake up this morning, Lord, bring me a trial today. Anybody ever wake up saying that? We don't have to ask for it, it's going to come. But when it comes, we better be saying, Lord, help me to be righteous through this trial. Help me to draw closer to you through this trial, through this suffering. Because that's why this is here, to bring us to Him. Without Christ's suffering, this would not be possible. We minimize sin. I believe that's one reason why God is ramping things up today. Because we, even as Christians, professing Christians, minimize sin today. We see it in our churches all the time. But some will share me the church there in Forestville. You know, you got a female pastor, which we know Scripture doesn't support that, but they got gay individuals that are singing in the choir and everything else but don't have a problem with it. It's okay. It's acceptable. And we're finding more and more churches that are, are, are condoning that kind of behavior because we just don't see the importance of sin and the horribleness of it. So God's going to ramp things up so that we can begin to ask the question, why are these things happening? That's what America, you know why America's in this mess, don't you? 
Our sin is catching up to us. Our greed, our immorality, our, our, all these things are catching up to us. And that's why we're in this condition. And there's only one solution. Repentance. A new prison is not going to help all that much. Because if the people don't change, the sin continues. Now, I, in fact, we were talking about this with some men a while back. You know, if brother, if Mr. Romney gets down and says, brother, he's not my brother. <laughs> Spiritually, he's not saved. I believe he will use some biblical principles that will get us out of the mess we're in. But that's not what we need. We need a president to say we are in sin and this is what we've got to do to get out of it. Now only God knows. And if Mr. Obama gets in there again, I'm going to have to say, okay God, thank you. It's not what I want. And the next four years I don't think are going to be good, but if that's what you need to do to get us on our knees, then so be it, God. Because I believe our nation is in deep trouble. <laughs> Because we are not. And there's not enough churches that are preaching from the pulpit. Our sin got us here. We're in that stage that's prophesied in Scripture. People want their ears tickled. And that's not what God wants us to do. So the purpose of the universe is to display the greatness of God. The suffering of Christ makes it possible for this greatness to be fully realized. Christ demonstrated the magnitude of his love for us so we can know the magnitude of his grace. The bottom line, no matter what the magnitude of our suffering is, when we see Christ suffering on our behalf, we can learn to suffer with him and for him. Let me encourage you to circle the word with and the word for. Again, for our young people, you might think these little words are important, but they are. The result, as a result, we can enjoy a deeper relationship with Him, and that's what it's all about. The suffering on our part, on God's part, is all for the purpose of bringing us into a closer relationship with Him. I trust that we are beginning to see suffering in a different light. I don't believe we need to pray, God, bring more suffering. I need more suffering. I don't believe we need to pray that. God knows what we need and when we need it. That when it comes, whether it be emotional, mental, spiritual, physical, when that suffering comes, we need to say, Lord, Help me to draw upon your grace. Help me to be righteous in this suffering so I can do it with you and for you because I want to demonstrate how big my love is for you because I know how big your love is for me because you already suffered on my behalf. I believe that when suffering comes, what we used to make a a, a molehill that we used to turn into a mountain. And guys, you've seen this in your marriages, right? You come home and your wife's got this huge mountain of a problem. And you look at it and say, honey, what are you excited about? That's just a little molehill. Right? What do we have to do, man? We have to climb to the top of that mountain and help them even though we may not see it so big. Well, we do that. 
we take things and turn them into really, really big things. And, and Christ is saying, you know, it's not that big a deal. But I'll climb that mountain with you and I'll help bring that mountain down to a molehill. I'll suffer with you because that's what I want us to do. And in fact, and I don't know if anybody's ever been in the military in a firefight. And it's see, I know some of our guys have been in the military. Never heard any of them talk about being in firefights, but you know, those men who go through firefights, they develop a very special bond because they've been through it together. God wants us in the foxholes with him. And he knows what battles to send. And that will develop that fox soul syndrome. And you and I better respond to his suffering or we'll miss it. And we'll walk away and we'll shrug it off. And that intimate relationship that he's trying to build in us will not exist. So when it comes, God help me to respond in a godly way to the foxhole syndrome that you're trying to build into me right now. And when we do that, that firefight won't seem so bad. Because you and I can't die until our time's up anyways. Right? You realize that? You and I are absolutely immortal until it's our time to go home. And I want to fight my battle as best I can with him. Because he's already suffered for me. Father, thank you for the word. I'm so grateful that my Savior suffered on my behalf. More than I can ever imagine. More than I'm worthy of. And yet, Father, it's part of your plan. So help me. Help us all, Father. You have very carefully chosen the suffering that we will go through from now to the day we breathe that last breath. And help us, Father, somehow to see it through your eyes and almost be excited about what you're going to do. Knowing that it would bring us closer to you. Help us to take our sins seriously. Not to be desensitized to it. Because you died to deliver us from it. And I'll give you the praise and the glory for all. It's in our Savior's name we pray. Amen.